0: Welcome to the Hillside Church Denver podcast, the home for content from Hillside Church in Denver, Colorado. Hillside exists to help people belong to Jesus people, believe in Jesus, and become like Jesus. And we hope that what you hear today does just that. Go to hillsidedenver.org for more information about this community of Jesus followers. And if you're in the Denver area, we would love to welcome you in one Sunday morning. But for now, onto the pod. So we're going to get back into First Thessalonians chapter four. Um, I'm going to ask specifically for prayer this morning. I just woke up really discouraged and kind of down and not feeling very energetic. And so um, uh, we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit takes over and that uh, God speaks through His Word. And we're going to let the Word speak for itself today um, as we go forward. So let me pray. Good morning, Lord. <clears throat> God, thank you for gathering us here this morning. Thank you for bringing everyone here who's here and bringing them safely. Uh, we pray for safe travels throughout the day. Um, as there's, there's a lot of ice and grossness out there. Um, Lord, uh, would you would you be present here and, and speak through your word this morning? Speak directly to our hearts. And uh, I pray that the truth of your word would would root itself deep into who we are so that we could be made more and more like Jesus. God, cleanse us this morning. Cleanse our hearts. Turn our eyes and incline our souls to you. Holy Spirit, do what you do best and point us to Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith, our one and only hope, the only Savior of the world, I'm the only source of true and everlasting life. In your name, amen.
1: All right. Good morning. Uh, this morning we're reading from First Thess- Thessalonians four one through eight. <clears throat> Additionally, then brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God. As you are doing, do this even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is God's will, your sanctification. That you keep away from sexual immorality. That, you, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. <clears throat> this means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner. Because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses. As we also previously told and warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Thank you. Oh
0: yeah, so here we are. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We covered the first three chapters last week because... It's almost all Thanksgiving. And honestly, we could spend months and months digging into the verses of 1 Thessalonians because it's it's a rich little book. I think you can say that about all of the Bible, right? You could just spend forever digging and digging and digging. Um, But I wanted to get us uh, to the teaching section of this little letter um, because uh, I think it, it has a lot to say to us where we are. And because it was written to a community of Jesus followers who were new to the faith and who lived in a culture and in a place that was hostile to their faith um, and where following Jesus was really weird and really bizarre um, in the culture, these are Paul's encouragements, and I think they they fit very well for us. Um, But the question I want to start with today is, what is God's will for your life? If If I asked you that question, how would you answer, what is God's will for your life? I've been in church ministry for a long time, and that is a question that pastors and church leaders get asked a lot. How do I know God's will for my life? And oftentimes when people ask that, they're asking for like a laid out plan. They're like, why hasn't God given me the step-by-step bullet point to my future yet? I don't understand, right? Um, and, And let me just spoil it for you. That never happens. Almost never. Almost never. I will not say there aren't people that God has been clear about, like, this is what you're going to do. But for most followers of Jesus, you're not going to get a straight-up laid-out plan for your life. And your life and your decisions are going to require, wait for it, faith. Which means you'll sometimes have to make a decision without being entirely clear about which decision God wants you to make. Now, obviously, if it's a decision between something that is clearly sinful and clearly God-honoring, we know which way God wants you to go in that. But when it's a decision between two different paths or two equally good paths where you could see yourself glorifying God and serving people either direction, you may have to just step out in faith and say, I'm going to go this direction. Or you may, wait for it again, need to consult other followers of Jesus. I know that's weird in an individualistic American culture that says you should run your own life. But sometimes it takes talking to other wise followers of Jesus to get counsel about the direction you should take and the decision you should make. And then it takes faith to step out and do it when God hasn't made it 100% abundantly clear which way to go. That's the nature of following Jesus. But I can tell you with absolute certainty what God's overarching will for your life is. Right now, it is the, it is 100% guaranteed bedrock. I know what God's will for your life is. God's will for your life is that you would become like Jesus. Period. That's it. In fact... That's what this text says right at the beginning. Paul says, Brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God, as you are doing, do this even more, for you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is God's will. Here it is, plain and simple, laid out for you. This is God's will. Your sanctification. We're going to stop there for a minute. We'll just park there at that word sanctification. That's a big word. That's a $10 theological word. Sanctification is being made holy. Did that clear it up for you? Sanctification is to be made holy. But what is holiness? Holiness is not a moral code. It is not a law that you follow, that you measure your life by. Some of us have grown up in churches and in places where that's what holiness means. Or we've encountered Christians, we holier-than-thou Christians, who want to make everybody else feel bad to make themselves feel better because they're holy and you're not. And by that, they mean they conform their lives to a certain set of standards that they expect you to conform to, too. And that's kind of the cultural popular idea of what holy means, of what holy is. That is not a biblical idea. It's not a biblical idea of what holiness is. Holy is the adjective for God. Very simply. Holy is the adjective for God. God is holy in and of himself and no other being is. God is God. God is holy. This is why we sometimes refer to holiness or define holiness as being set apart. Being separate from the world or from other things. God is unique. God is separate. God is set apart. God is holy. And therefore, to be holy is to reflect God in our character and in our being and in our actions. It's to be like God or to be set apart for God's use, there was a temple way back when. Right there was a temple dedicated to God in Jerusalem, and in that temple there were all kinds of instruments that were used for the worship of God. There were big wash basins, and there were these flutes that you'd put money into to give your offering, and there were tools that were used for sacrificing animals, and there were there was a special altar where bulls would be burned and. Lambs would be burned for sacrificial offerings. And all of these things were called holy because they were set apart only for the use of the worship of God and nothing else. You could not take the ceremonial knife that was used to sacrifice a bull and just go use it to slaughter your own animal on your farm. That would make it unholy. That would make it impure or unclean. And so holiness is two, two-sided, two-parted. When it comes to the instruments of worship or when it comes to the things that are set apart solely for the worship of God, those things are called holy because they are dedicated only to the worship of God. And then when it comes to people, holy. To be holy is to reflect God in who we are. It's to be like God. And the word, this big word sanctification here, in Greek it's the word agiasmos, agia being the word holy. It's literally to be made holy. That's all sanctification means, to be made holy, which is to be made like God, the only truly holy being in his own nature. Following with me here? This is God's will for you, that you would be set apart for the worship and service of the God who made you and loves you, and that your character would become conformed to God, that you would be transformed into a godlike person in the decisions that you make, in the way that you live your life, in the speech that you do, in the actions that you take, in the way you use your body, that you would be holy in everything. This is the entire purpose of Christianity. This is the entire purpose of following Jesus. The whole purpose is to make a people who look like God. This is what God told the Israelites when he called them out as a people. When he called them out of Egypt and formed this new nation. He said to them, be holy as I am holy. And told them, you'll be my representatives in the world. You are a kingdom of priests. That is your people who come to the world and tell them about what your God is like and demonstrate what your God is like by your actions. That's what it meant for Israel to be priests and to be holy as God is holy. Set apart for his glory and conform to his character. And as Christians, that's who we're supposed to be. As followers of Jesus, we are to be set apart for the service ...of our God and conformed to the character of our Savior, Jesus. This is what sanctification is. And so if, we're, if we've got that in hand, now we can move to the next part. Because the next part gets really weird. You're thinking, okay, Paul, you told me God's will for me is sanctification. And then what does he think is the most important thing for your sanctification? Thessalonian Christians... For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is God's will, your sanctification. And then our Bibles has a colon, meaning this is the content of your sanctification. This is what you do if you want to be sanctified. That you keep away from sexual immorality. For the Thessalonian Christians, this is what Paul thinks they need most to hear. Hey, God wants you to be holy God's will for you is to be holy, to be sanctified. And the first way you do that, Thessalonian Christians, is by fleeing sexual immorality. Now, this this is strange because you could think of many, many, many things that might come first or that might be necessary. So why sexual immorality? Why is this the thing that Paul lists first? For your holiness, for your sanctification. Why? Excuse me, sorry. I don't wear these boots up here very much and they're tripping me up. Why sexual immorality? Well, for a number of reasons. And we'll start first with this. What we do with our bodies as followers of Jesus matters the world that these followers of Jesus became Christians in, there was, there was a lot of thinking out there that said basically what matters is your heart, what matters is your mind and your intent, and what you do with your body doesn't matter nearly as much. This was present and prevalent in the town of Thessalonica, in the city of Thessalonica. And later it would be developed into like a whole theology called Gnosticism that said, look, the physical world doesn't matter. All that really matters is the immaterial world and what you think and how you feel. And your bodies are going to be burned anyway, so it doesn't matter what you do with them. And that, that idea, the seeds of that idea were already present here. And so you had a Greek culture that would basically say, look, what we do with our bodies... Eh, doesn't really matter so much. And a lot of these Christians who have now come to follow Jesus, they're coming from that background. They're coming from a background of fairly loose sexual morals where sex with prostitutes and slaves was not abnormal, or even with children, men with boys. And this is the world that these people are coming to faith in Jesus in. And so Paul lists this first because this is a great temptation for these Greek Gentile Christians who are now following Jesus, following the Jewish Messiah. And so Paul's saying, look, break with your culture on this. What you do with your body matters. Your physical body matters. How you care for it, how you use it. It matters to God and it matters for your holiness. It matters for your sanctification. Because here's the truth. Every choice we make and everything we do shapes us in very small ways. But every time we make a decision, it's like a sculptor chiseling a block of marble. Every hammer strike, every chisel strike takes a tiny bit off. But eventually, that sculpture begins to form into something you can see. And as human beings, we're shaped not only by our parents and by our culture and by the world outside of our bodies. We're shaped by the things that we choose to do by the choices that we make. Like a sculptor chipping away at marble, we are slowly being transformed into something by the forces outside of ourselves and by the things that we do and choose ourselves. We are sculpting ourselves. And when we choose to use our bodies in a way that doesn't honor them as temples of God and doesn't honor other people, we're shaping ourselves into something misshapen into something God did not want, something God did not intend. And so we're working against our own sanctification. We're working against our own becoming holy as God is holy, as he's called us to. And so what we do with our bodies matters. It matters a lot And because God made us, and because God knows us to our core, and because God has intentions for us from the very beginning, God has set a way that we should use our bodies with sexual engagement. The Bible is not a prudish book. If you ever doubt that, go read the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. It is very explicit about sex. God loves it. It's a good thing. It's meant for intimacy. It's meant to draw people together. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. But there's a context for it. And outside of that context, it becomes something ugly and degrading. And so this is why God set up sex to be a good, beautiful thing within the context of marriage. And that is all. It's only there that sex becomes a truly unifying, intimate place where it doesn't get distorted. It's only within the context of a lifelong partnership, a lifelong commitment, a lifelong bonding together that sex really performs its function of drawing us together, of creating intimacy, of bringing new life into the world in a stable environment. And outside of the context of marriage, sex becomes something that's degrading, something that harms our own sanctification. And not just the physical act with other people. Pornography, the sexualization and objectification that is so prevalent in our world. It seems like Almost every ad is sexualized in some way to cause us to objectify people. And when you live in a world where the advertising industry and the media consumption that we, see, that we, that we are in, involved in every day tells us to objectify not only other people but ourselves, to base our own worth on our own fitness and how we look and how, we, how attractive we are to the opposite sex, and then shows us continually photos and pictures and images of people who are attractive to us, people whose bodies have been manipulated in order to make us more attracted to them, to look at people only as sexual objects, then we're no longer honoring the full humanity of ourselves or other people. And that's, that's the culture we live in, that's the world we live in, that has taught us and formed us to look at other people primarily as bodies to be used. This is the danger of sex outside of God's covenant purposes outside of God's design it dehumanizes and degrades and works actively against our own sanctification and even the rule even the common rule today that that, well sex is okay as long as there's consent the only thing we really need is consent if you have two consenting adults doesn't matter what they do they've chosen that even that is not enough even the standard of, well, we both agree to this, we both consent to it, isn't enough. We have to be fully committed to one another. Or else sex becomes something that breaks us. As we have differing expectations, and we have differing expectations for relationships, and for, what, for where we're going to go, this is God's design. This is what he showed us back in Genesis chapter 2 when he said a man will leave his father and mother and bond with his wife and the two will become one flesh. That's where God designed sex to be and that's where it is holy and only there. Now I realize I'm talking to a lot of people who already agree with this and so we want to move to the other dimensions. Why sexual immorality? Well, one, because it matters what we do with our bodies. Two, because for the Christians in Thessalonica who were coming to Jesus out of a Gentile pagan culture, this was a huge shift. And so their thinking around sex had to change to conform to what the expectation was. But there's another reason the sexual immorality is mentioned first here in Thessalonica, in the letter to the Thessalonians. And that's because in this place right here, the idea of sexual immorality is a stand-in for idolatry. You see, in Greek culture, the worship of certain gods involved sex with prostitutes. There were temple prostitutes. And if you wanted to go worship a certain God, one of the ways that you could do that was to go and have sex with a temple prostitute. That was a mode of worship. It was a way of using the slaves in your household or another person's slave. It was a way of using young boys. A generally accepted tenet of society. And all of these are idolatrous. Now, To worship an idol is simply to worship anything other than the living God. Any worship that we do that is not given to the creator living God, father of Jesus Christ, is idolatry. It's worshiping something else. You don't have to bow down to a graven image. You don't have to have a statue on your mantle or on your shelf that you go and pray prayers to. Idolatry is simply worshiping anything other than God. Worshiping anything other than Jesus, the King. And so here, the most tempting way to go and worship an idol, the most tempting way to go and worship something other than Jesus, was to go and unite yourself to a temple prostitute. Was to go and have sex with a temple prostitute. Or involve yourself in these sexual worship practices. The same is true in Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 6, you can read a long passage about how we worship God with our bodies, how we use our bodies. And the Corinthian Christians were facing the same temptation to go worship at the temple and to unite themselves to prostitutes. And there is the place where Paul says, don't you know that you are not your own? You were bought with a price and you cannot use a holy vessel for unholy means. And here... In Thessalonians, he's making the same argument. He's saying we were made for purity, for holiness, not for impurity. We were made to worship God and God alone, not to worship these other things. And so in this time and place, the greatest temptation to idolatry was sexual immorality, which means, again, any sexual activity outside of covenant marriage. Period. That is the Hebrew standard. That's the biblical standard. And so for us, we've got to read this and say, okay, what's my greatest temptation? What's our greatest temptation to idolatry? What's our greatest temptation to worship something other than God, other than Jesus? And we can substitute sexual immorality with whatever we come up with. The problem is that we're not always aware of our idols, it's one of the reasons it's so important to be with the body of Christ, to be with one another. It's so important to gather together and to hear the word of God and let the word of God expose our idols. Or let other people in our lives, other followers of Jesus, expose our idols. So what's, what's the idol in your life? Where are you most tempted to worship? If you're not sure, one surefire way to figure out what I really worship is to look at my spending. What am I giving my money to? What am I pouring my resources into? Is there something that I'm giving an inordinate amount of my money to? Is there something I'm pouring more than I need into? Because it brings me a sense of worth or value. Because it makes me feel comfortable or comforted or loved. Is there something I'm pouring my money into that that I don't really need to? But I keep going back to this thing because it makes me feel good. It makes me feel a sense of value and worth. You've found an idol in your life. Is my career so important to me, that I'm cutting off friendships or my family? Is my career so important to me, that I'm, I'm losing out on other relationships and time? I'm not able to engage with God's people. I'm not able to worship the king? It's become an idol. I'm now worshiping the security that my career can bring. I'm worshiping the money that it brings in for me or the status that it brings or the satisfaction that I'm bringing to my employer. And so I'm getting comfort and security and peace from this place that I was never really meant to find comfort and security and peace. Is it my family? Am I worshiping my kids? Am I giving everything to them to the point that they can't even grow up and become self-sufficient human beings. They can't even grow up and become healthy adults because I'm providing everything for them and pouring everything in and I give them what they want, when they want it, how they want it. Your kids have become an idol that you're worshiping. You're worshiping their affection and their approval of you rather than your Father in heaven. Is it sports? I know this is an overplayed one in the church, but it's true. Am I missing out on other relationships? Am I missing out on the worship of Jesus? Am I missing out on spending time with his people because I can't turn off ESPN or because I've got season tickets to this place or because will I show up to a football game on a negative two degree day, but I won't show up to church on a negative two degree day? You've got an indication where your heart is. What's the idol that you're most tempted to run to? for comfort, for peace, security. You want to know what you worship? Look for where you find your value and worth. And that's what you are worship. I got to confess, I was dealing with that this morning. I'm not trying to come down hard on anybody because this very morning, I woke up discouraged and frustrated. And I stood back there 20 minutes ago. I stood back there at the back of the church and watched For cars coming in because my value and worth was in how many people are in the pews. Because my value and worth was how successful the church is. And I drive by and pass pastor friends' churches who are full even on a morning like this and I'm envious. And I find my own idol. I find that I'm worshiping success As determined by the world, as determined by church marketers, rather than my value and worth in my status as a child of the Most High God, saved by Jesus and indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. That's where my value and worth is. That's who I am. And when I'm turned to Jesus, when I'm turned to God, when I have my eyes fixed firmly on Him, I can't forget who I am in light of Him. And I can't go and worship these other things. I can't find my value and worth in anything else if I'm fixed on Jesus all the time. And that's what Paul is calling us to. Not just to rejecting a certain type of activity or legalistically trying to earn God's favor by fulfilling a checklist of do's and don'ts but rooting ourselves, anchoring ourselves in who we are in Jesus Christ so that the temptations to go elsewhere are null and void so that I'm not pulled toward these other things because I've found so much satisfaction and value and worth and love and embrace from my good God who didn't have to love me, who didn't have to save me, but chose to go to a cross and pay for my sin so I could have his life and be part of his family. That's what we're being pointed to here. We ought never let ourselves get get bogged down with trying to perform our way into God's grace or finding our worth and value in the things that we can do and the ways that we can please God with our hands And with our lives, we ought to always be pointed to our savior, Jesus, who looked at us when we were sinners and couldn't do anything, looked at us when we were dead in our sin and said, I will trade my life for theirs. To the God who loved you so much that he couldn't let you stay far from him, but had to pursue you and left a throne in heaven to live here in the discouragement and dirt of our world and give his life. For you, If we want to come overcome idolatry in our lives, it's not about making a checklist of rules that we follow. It's about turning our eyes and our hearts toward Jesus, the one who has saved us, to the Holy Spirit of God who indwells us, and to the Father who loves us and has adopted us as his own. That's the answer to idolatry in our lives. And so whether it's a temptation toward sexual immorality, toward pornography or toward being with someone that you're not married to, whether it's a temptation toward idolizing your children and the affection that they can give you, whether it's a temptation toward money and security, and whether it's a temptation toward climbing the ladder and getting the adoration of people around you and being viewed as successful by others, whatever the idol is in your life, the answer is not to hunker down and try harder. The answer is to turn your eyes to Jesus and let him define you. Root yourself in him. Root yourself in Christ and in the God who loves you. And this is where I find that statement from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.20 so helpful. I am not my own. I was bought with a price. And so when I am tempted to look away from Jesus or when I am tempted to find my comfort and security in something or I am tempted to some activity that I know does not honor God and my neighbor, that becomes my prayer. Not give me the strength to overcome. But Lord, remind me who I am. Remind me that I am holy in your sight because Jesus has made me holy. And so I'm going to invite you now to pray this prayer with me. And I'm going to give this as a gift to you in moments of temptation. And so would you pray this with me? Let's just say it out loud. I'm not my own. I was bought bought. With a price. I am not my own. I was bought with a price. I am not my own. I was bought with a price. Lord God, you have called us into your family. Truly, you have paid a price for us. King Jesus, elder brother, firstborn from among the dead, you have overcome sin and death on our behalf. And in your goodness, you've called us not to white knuckle our way through this life and try to earn God's favor. But you have redeemed us from our sin and made us holy in your sight Saints before the throne of our Father God, indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, you have made us yours through the price that you paid. And Holy Spirit, never let us forget it. Continually draw us in to the truth of who we are through the sacrificial love of our Lord Jesus. And God, as we come to this meal, to take into ourselves the very presence of Jesus, I pray that you would cleanse us by it. That we would be freshly empowered to go and to live as those who have been saved and redeemed and adopted by our King Jesus. Representing you well in all that we do. Praying all throughout our day, I am not my own. I was bought with a price, the price of the life of Jesus Christ. And my God was happy to pay it for his love for me. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.